Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. I've got a cardboard cutout of Gary Lineker in my, still in my loft. I had like a weird sort of out-of-body experience that day and I was watching myself on the floor looking at the paramedics and then I remember being almost like, I felt I was, it's going to sound really strange this cake, I, I have no way of explaining it to you, but I almost felt like I was sucked back into my body. I don't, I don't mean this to sound rude in any way, but um, is, the, is the head consultant around and can they have a look at the scan? Because if I'm going to tell my family that I've got cancer, I'd need to know 100%. So it was a pretty weird night. Um, what made you want to walk into that as, as a conversation? Uh, concern, I think, Kate. Um, mm. We have a tendency in a situation like that, Philip Schofield, Hugh Edwards, whatever it might be, um, you know, even the Holly Willoughby stuff more recently, we, we, people just fire off rockets in every direction and you don't know what you're going to hit and what you're going to cause and what sort of damage you're going to do. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine, although not today, it's 11am. And my guest and I, well, we're not savages. In fact, he is one of our most prominent sports and news anchors who millions woke up to every day on BBC Breakfast before he switched his alarm off last year to become the face of Channel 5's early evening news. Born and raised in Crawley, he grew up as a sports-obsessed teenager with an ambition to become a sports and news anchor, even practising his commentating as a teenager, watching live matches at home with the sound turned down to perfect 
what will go on to become his craft. His father is a pastor, as is one of his brothers, and such is his commitment to his faith, he's managed to balance a career in live sports coverage whilst insisting he never works Sundays. After writing to Des Lynam for careers advice when he was 11, he followed his mustachioed hero's advice to the T and started out as a super slick and super enthusiastic commentator for Manchester's Key 103 Radio before joining Granada Television and later the BBC, first at its regional news programme North West Tonight and later on Football Focus where he resided for 12 years and the BBC's Breakfast Sofa for six. Having moved to Sheffield to study a master's in journalism in the late 90s, he met his wife there, Sarah, and they've remained in the city ever since, where they live with their three children and his in-laws. As well as anchoring the news on Channel 5, he also hosts a raft of factual entertainment shows for the channel and has recently published his second book. It's called Standing on the Shoulders and it tells some brilliant stories that chart, well, just some of the extraordinary and yet very ordinary people he's met across the course of his life. But you wouldn't want him on your shoulders, let me tell you. He stands at a majestic six foot six. There's a lot to him, as you're about to discover. So let's dial him in. It's Dan Walker. Good morning. Hello, Kate. I know we haven't got a glass of wine, but I just have had a pint of milk and I've got some water here. What have you got? I've got, I mean, I'm not going to lie, Dan, right? My boiler's not working. My Wi-Fi's on the blink. I'm on my seventh espresso. <laughs> you can peel me off the ceiling at lunchtime. <laughs> it's very nice to talk to you, Kate. Thank you very much for having me on. You too. Well, you too. I have admired you from afar uh, for for many a moon now. I think you 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 live in that sort of really strange world that I resided in for a while, where you're just always there as a broadcaster. You become part of people's everyday fabric. It's a strange situation. I I had um just after the pandemic, about a month after the pandemic, there was this. Uh, I was doing an event, and a lovely lady came up to me, and I could see that she was quite emotional, and she just said that. Um, she said, I, I just wanted to come up and I just wanted to say hello because watching BBC Breakfast every morning uh, with you and Louise and, and you and Sally and you and Carol, um, it actually got me through the pandemic. And then she started mm. getting really emotional, started crying. And, I, and you forget, don't you, that it's you know, for, it's just a job and I love doing breakfast and I love doing the job I'm doing now. But um, you get the opportunity to have sometimes a very strange uh, relationship with the people who are watching and that was now i've had so many conversations like that over the years and it just reminds you that it's yes it's tv and there's cameras and there's lights and it's a it's a lovely job but essentially you're talking to somebody at the end of that camera and that's a really important relationship and you should never forget how crucial that is for for so many people especially the kind of programming you do and i noticed a real switch in the way people responded to me when i transferred from sort of Saturday night telly to daytime mm. so on Saturday night telly for example in the supermarket people would sort of you know nudge their partner and say oh look at it, it is it, I think it is her is that Neil McAndrew you know always getting you wrong <laughs> but then once you're on telly on, on daytime telly they would then come up to me and say, oh, my goodness, how's your Ben? How did he get on at sports day, you know? <laughs> because you just have a much more, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a yeah. far less removed relationship. It sounds very, like we're being very grandiose here, but um, actually it's really important. You know, fundamentally we work for broadcasters, but we don't. We work for the audience. And that's why I love podcasting, because they're, they're my bosses. They decide how many downloads each week, not a scheduler. <laughs> 
but I, it, this is going to sound like you know, grandiose is a is a probably a good word to describe it. But I, you know, I, I see myself as a broadcaster and a and a journalist. And I, I the reason why I love that job is because I think it's a really important role, particularly at a time now where you know truth and trust have never been more important. And you know, we're we are saturated aren't we with facts and stuff that we need to check on social media and online and even in you know the papers what do you, who do you trust and, and what programs do you trust and who do you listen to and i think as a as a journalist i i do fundamentally believe that my job is you know i you, you we can be the sword for people who can't fight and the shield for people who can't defend themselves and we can ask questions of those in power and and i think that's a that's an extraordinary privilege and I, I, I genuinely I don't take that lightly and I know that that's a really important role and I, I enjoy doing it I'm, I, I never I, I'm not interested in fame and all that business I know that comes with part of the package I just love doing the job and that's always been what inspires me whether it's you know watching a football match covering Wimbledon going to the Olympic Games hosting a news program interviewing the Prime Minister whatever that might be I just I just I really I feel so lucky to have yeah. to have done this job Kate really I feel I feel very uh, much the same when it comes when with regard to our profession it's interesting I, I just had Adrian Charles on recently and he said you know the one thing he struggled with was the, um, and you just talked that you had the Prime Minister for 30 minutes and you know trying to do something meaningful in three minutes is really difficult and he said what you end up doing is just becoming like a narrator where <laughs> nobody gets to speak trying to over explain everything and there just isn't the time to do that but um, this takes me actually quite nicely to my first question for you, if that's okay. Would you yeah. mind if we dive in? Let's do it. You are not afraid to tread into conversations that many in your position um, fear to tread or aren't allowed to. I mean, until very recently, obviously, you were not muzzled by um, the, the T's and C's of the BBC, but to a degree, um, you were obliged to remain utterly impartial and I wondered why and when you felt compelled to speak up at times and put your head above the parapet because I only have to look through your Instagram feed to see that there are times when you have done exactly that you've um, you've spoken out on the treatment or mistreatment of people and stories and misleading headlines and even Piers Morgan who? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I, I think, yeah, there's a, you, you know what the BBC is like. The BBC is a, a wonderful beast. And I, I always feel fundamentally that the broadcasting landscape would be much worse off without the BBC. I think there's some brilliant people there and I loved working for the BBC and hopefully I will again one day. Um, and it's not that I feel, oh, I'm, I'm free now because, you know, I used to, I, I, sometimes I'd talk about a subject when I was on the BBC and I'd get told off, but that still happens now. I mean, I've, I've listened, I've been there and I never, this was never at the BBC. It's like, you know, can you come upstairs, please? You go, oh God, what have I said? And then the moment they say Ofcom, you go, oh no, what have I, I, try never, I try not to give my opinion, okay? Because I don't, I'm not that interested in it. I don't think that's my job to give my opinion. I know lots of other broadcasters do that, but what I, tr what I try and do is I, I, I do feel that sometimes I have an opportunity to fight other people's corners. And you said earlier about you enjoyed mm. telling people stories. That's what I love doing. So I will count, you know, if I, like we did on BBC Breakfast, if I meet some old fella in the park who I think I can help him to get a fly past because he's been looking after a memorial for, you know, the best part of half a century, I'll do it. 
And I don't mind bringing up the UK, uh, the US ambassador to the UK. And I don't mind, you know, spending my time doing that or whether it's a, another the old fella um, who doesn't have a Christmas tree and hasn't had one for, for 20 years. I don't mind saying, why, why are we not looking after our old people in this country? And, you know, loneliness is a massive issue. Let's, let's highlight that by going around this guy's house and getting a local choir to sing um, you know, his favourite carol outside and that gets watched millions of times on YouTube and thousands of people sign up to AGK to be care. That's, that's, I think that's good use of my um, platform, I feel. But equally, you also did say, hey, Matt Hancock, whilst he was in the jungle, your rumoured £400,000 fee, why don't you really show people how much you care by donating it to an NHS cause? Now, that's quite different to helping an old man yeah, get a I Christmas tree. Occasionally, I, I, listen, I'm not, I don't want you to think that I'm at home watching I'm a Celeb getting angry. I'm not, I wasn't angry about that. I was. Why shouldn't you? You know, allowed to be. I mean, no, you're I just, allowed to I, be. I, I feel fundamentally that... Oh, I often, I wonder, can you put your head on the pillow at night and think, okay, I've done a good day's work today or that's acceptable. And I think sometimes with things like that, I, I wonder whether somebody like Matt Hancock would be thinking, is that the right thing to have done? Um, I know he's trying to repair his image. I know he's trying to go on TV and he has a right to go on TV. That's not a problem. But I just, my issue with that was that so many people would be watching that and might be triggered by that or might be so angry that he was there earning all that money when he was instrumental, you know, made some really big decisions during the pandemic, which still are affecting families now. And I just thought, I'm not, oh, I'm not sure that anyone's done the right thing. Do you know what, though? If 10 years ago, right, you sat down and somebody had said to you, in 10 years' time, this is the news that you're going to be reporting. There will have been, you know, a handful of prime ministers within a handful of months, right? I mean, like, the, the level of farce that you have had to navigate, report, um, it's been quite extraordinary, actually, hasn't it? You know, when you, but I think we will look back and remember this time with slack jaws because it has been. I mean, we've almost become a little bit numb to the absolute um, ridiculousness of it all. Yeah, I, I, someone mentioned to me the other day. I, I've forgotten about an interview I did with Michael Gove. Um, you know, when he was a senior minister, and he started doing. I don't know if you remember. He started doing an impression of the Scousers on, uh, you know, BBC Breakfast. <laughs> Telling, yes. telling people to calm down. And I, I, you know, so horribly are you, inappropriate. Are you okay, Michael? And I remember, I remember talking to Liz Truss um, about uh, the influence of Russian money in London particularly, but in, in the UK. And you know, she was sort of absolutely denying that there's any link whatsoever. And we'd been on her Instagram the night before. And I said, um, Mr. Trust, can I just can we just show you this picture that we found on your Instagram last night? And we put it up on the screen, and I could see that her her eyelids were flickering because she was like, "Oh no!" And it was her. It was at a time when she was in Theresa May's cabinet, and there were five. Um, uh, I think there were five women from the cabinet, including Theresa May and Liz Trust, and they were stood next to. Um, um, Mrs. Lebedev, who's you know, and th that family is one of the biggest. Uh, Russian donors to the Tory party and puts a lot of money into the UK. They, they also own um, media outlets as well, right? Yes, that's right. And um, they're all sort of arms around each other with a drink in hand. And remember, this is the Prime Minister at the time and uh, four or five of the other senior cabinet members. And I think that the uh, line at the bottom said, ladies night. And I'm thinking, I said to her, you know, can we show you this picture? Because you're saying that there is no link between... Uh, Russian money and 
your party or money in this country that's come from Russia. And can you explain this picture in the light of what you just said? And I just, you, you, exactly what you mentioned there before, I mean, you wouldn't even believe that you'd be having that conversation with a frontline politician who would then go on to be prime minister. Yeah. Um, for, a, for a short space of time, but but this is this I mean, is where when we, we are. say short. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I know she's got blinky eyes, but she did it literally in a blink of an eye. <laughs> that was that was a strange. You know, the the week the the Queen sadly passed away, and you know, mm. Liz Truss was sort of in and then out, and then I mean, what? This is what I mean about in, in years to come, we'll look back and go, who was she? <laughs> oh, she was the Prime Minister. Really, I've never heard of her. It's going to be that. <laughs> It was remarkable. Can I talk to you about some of the other times you've raised your voice when others maybe chose not to? Um, the reporting, in the, the man that broke the news around the passing of the Queen and did it in a, it did it beautifully, I have to say, as, as a professional, uh, was Hugh Edwards. And at the same time, there were multiple stories um, uh, surrounding both him uh, as well as the likes of Philip Schofield and uh, the way that was unfolding uh, elsewhere. And you quite calmly came in and posted on your Instagram just a kind of message of like, right, you know, everybody just needs to remember that some people here are very close to the edge. And you spoke up when many, many, many colleagues that don't know them, and I, I'm sure that you know Hugh, I, I have no idea if you knew Philip, um, what made you want to walk into that as as a conversation? Uh, concern, I think, Kate. Um, mm. I often, when I think about, Cause it's such such a tricky subject, I know, right? I know because we don't know the full facts for a start, and I should I should say that now. We don't know the full facts, and we don't know what has happened or will happen, and what will come out. But I just think. We have a tendency in a situation like that, Philip Schofield, Hugh Edwards, whatever it might be, um, you know, even the Holly Willoughby stuff more recently, we, we, people just fire off rockets in every direction and you don't know what you're going to hit and what you're going to cause and what sort of damage you're going to do. Now, I, I think one of the points I, I made at the time was I, I hope everybody involved is okay. And I, I genuinely mean that because these things, if you're in the front page of a paper or, you know, people are talking about you and really being disparaging and, uh, saying horrible things about you. I don't care who you are, that affects you. And I I, st- I often go back to my good friend, um, Gary Speed, who uh, took his own oh, life. Yes. Um, I, I, I'd known him well, and I, I was on Football Focus with him uh, on the Saturday, spent most of the day with him, and then I had a phone call from Alan Shearer the next morning to say, have you heard about Gary? And Gary had taken his own life. And it was front page and back page news because he was one of the first like men who seemed like they had the perfect life and yet he decided that he didn't want to be around anymore. Had two beautiful young boys. Um, everything was going seemingly his way. And I, I often think about, you know, how did I leave that situation? And how did Gary feel when he left me and then left the Master of the Day studios and, and went back home? And I've gone over every single word that we said to each other time after time after time after time. And ever since I've done that interview, I think that's one of the reasons why, Kate, that I'm not so confrontational in interviews as other people are because I know it's important that you leave things the right way because you never know what the next day is going to bring and I think having been through that and sort of the you know the conversations you have with yourself for many years after that I just think that you never know what's going on in those quiet corners of someone's house however big that house is you know what I mean and I, I worry about um 
where we leave people because of the things that we say about them. And that's, that, was, that was where it came from. It came from a level of concern to make sure that if you've done something wrong and you've hurt someone and you've been unprofessional or you've been cruel, then fair enough, you take the hit for that and you might lose your job and you might even have to you know, face a court case for that. And that's, that's fine and that's okay. And that's due process, well, right? Due process. Think, that, yeah. was, your, was your issue that there was there was no allowing anybody to have due process because there was just so much noise that we may not even get to due process because somebody might have done something as extreme as yeah. Gary had done exactly. many years and I previously. Think we, we get so judgmental when we don't know the facts, and I think that's part of the you know modern media obsessed society that we live in where you know straight away you're out on the street you're doing a vox pop about what you think about you know these people what do you think about that and you, nobody knows but then oh sack him get rid of him you know he should uh, we should lock him up or where's the death penalty he's like come on just have a think about yeah the, you know what the impact those words have i'm not saying that people should avoid punishment for things that they've done wrong i just think we need to take care of each other um and uh even with I often go back to the Caroline Flack thing as well. You know, people, people in the media just kept pressing her buttons, just kept pressing her buttons, just never let her go, never let her go, never let her go. Just kept saying she was average and kept saying she looked like this and kept jabbing away at her without any care. And then what happened happened. And, and then, you know, people come out and say, oh, it's so sad. I was like, well, hold on a minute. There's, you should be pointing the finger at yourself. And you should be really having a long, hard look about the words that you wrote and the impact they had. I, th- I think you're right. You know, we have to allow processes to unfold. You know, situations like, for example, with Hugh or with Philip Schofield, the, they will be investigated. That doesn't yeah. happen in time for the five o'clock news tonight where you go out and prod somebody and ask them to have an extreme soundbite. Um, that's not news gathering, I don't think. But, but I, I also think that, I won't go into details of the stories because I don't want to betray anybody, but there have been times when I've been asked to cover a certain story in a certain way and I've said no. And I've got in trouble for that on occasions, but I think it's it's important that... No, I'm not going to interview somebody who's literally just going to drag someone through the coals even though they don't know the details. But we need to fill five minutes. Well, find something else to do then. Like, find something that's... You know, find a good story to put in there. I'm not saying we've... You know, we have a blinkered view of the world, but I think sometimes we can just, we've just got to be careful with how we deal with things. And I've got, you know, I've got kids. I've got a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 13-year-old, and they're, they're, they're brilliant, but they're growing up in a world which is very different to the one I think that I grew totally. up in. So I was doing the football run at the weekend and um, picking my son and his friends up, and they're all sat in the back of the car, and, you know, you have these conversations, and you realise all their news comes from TikTok, they're talking about things like they were talking about Palestine, uh, Palestinians, and their their view was a shared one. And you could see that they'd all basically they were all consuming pretty much the same algorithms. So what they were, I'm not saying what they thought was right or wrong. It was just they weren't presented with an objective uh, set of facts so that they could arrive at their own opinion and that worries me for life going forward because we are we are it's echo chambers yeah and exactly and that's why things you know some of the i remember you know every time something like uh brexit happens or donald trump gets elected in america the sort of left-leaning side of the media are absolutely how did that happen because you're not listening 
because you're not listening to what people are actually saying and what people are actually thinking because you're on social media and you just follow people that are exactly like you. We all need to broaden our horizons a little well, bit. I, I think. You know what I do? I actually go out of my way to follow people that I don't agree with. Are men to that? Just to try and cook the algorithm algorithms. That's what I try to do. I try to game the algorithms. That's what I, I, I go and speak to. I, I run a, a bursary and a scholarship scheme at Sheffield University. And I go and speak to their students every year and the journalism students. And I say to them, you know, get out there and be on social media, but make sure that about half the people that you follow, you fundamentally disagree with. Do you? Um, That's good. Yeah. Because you, ha- I think that otherwise you just think, well, everyone thinks like me. And then yeah. you're surprised that someone's got a different... so righteous. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we move off this question, uh, there was a brilliant exchange um, that I just, I, I, I thought you, you, you styled it beautifully. So to give some background, the f- you, you'd first met Piers Morgan, who went on to be your sofa rival, right, at breakfast. Um, at, a, at a function uh, and it was when you just started at BBC Breakfast and you said he came over to you and said to you you're going to be terrible we're going to annihilate you right? <laughs> but, and I can totally imagine Piers saying that and then you said I met him again after he walked off GMB and I told him all those years you were on GMB you mentioned me almost every day and we didn't mention your name once until the day you left <laughs> <laughs> I did say it with a big smile on my face. I we are, you know, because you're actually mates, aren't you? Yeah, I, I and, and Piers is brilliant at his job, right? Um, and I remember once we we met, and he went, "Oh, you and me, we're very similar, aren't we?" I went, "I'm going to stop you there, Piers," <laughs> <laughs> because I we we're not. And um, but there's nothing wrong with that. And I think you know the the good thing about choice is that you could watch BBC Breakfast or you could watch Good Morning Britain and that and that's fine and he's a very good journalist um I I probably would approach the vast majority of stories and interviews in a different way to the way that he would do it uh-huh. and again that's fine um and I'm not saying that my way is right and his way is wrong but I don't I would ne- you know give you an idea of what <laughs> when we when we we just been on BBC Breakfast and GMB for about 6 months and then we played golf in this a big tournament, the BMW PGA at Wentworth with Kevin Peterson and you know, lots of people following us around all day. And Piers sort of said, um, about six holes in, he goes, uh, Dan, I've, I've paid my mate to come down and take some pictures today. Um, do, you, do you think if I just put my, can I put my hands around your neck and you sort of laugh as I'm shaking your neck? I was like, this is, this is, what, this is what you're up against. Like... He, he never switches off, but that's why no, he, he doesn't. And then he'd have posted that with some sort of, you know, exactly. Dan trying to come to terms with my increasing ratings, omitting <laughs> yeah. the fact that you are still beating him. I know, but listen, I, in the ratings healthy, that is, we had a healthy, yeah, I wouldn't be. We had a healthy rivalry, and I think it was probably good for for both programs. But there was a sportsmanship about it. Do you remember when he tweeted about the? Um, the Rio Olympics he said I just can't get excited by silver and bronze medals you win or you lose your response was for someone who's gone on record before saying they detest silver medals five years in second place must hurt quite a bit (laughs) I know it's a bit so there was a yeah there was a bit of my car's bigger than your car sometimes which I'm I'm not sure is the best way to do it willy waving is what we call it yeah Yeah. Yeah, I know, but I, we, it was it was all done in good jest. So I, th- I still think there are times, and I've told him this, that he crossed the line, um, and I, I don't feel that I did cross the line. And I think the you know the important thing is, uh, I'm upset for him that he left in the way that he did. You know that that ended in GMB that the way that it did because I think 
you always want to leave somewhere the, with the respect of your colleagues and thinking, thank you very much for working with me. We we enjoyed it, and I, I just I never like it when it when it ends like that for anybody. Mm. Well, that's very gallant of you, because I'm sure that were I talking to Piers right now and you had left under the same, same circumstances from the BBC of Breakfast Sofa, he would not be saying the same. <laughs> well. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Let's move from one small screen, um, self-proclaimed hero, to another for question number two. You have um, the mighty mustachioed Des Lynam to thank for your first proper careers advice, which you seemingly, Dan, followed to the T. But Mm. I think about, you know, the number of times that we get people write to us or contact us asking for advice and I just think gosh I wish I'd been a bit more Des Lynam at times I mean definitely I've responded in the past but have I responded with the same level of detail and encouragement that Des gave you um I I hope so but I I, I doubt it so I wondered mm. when else somebody has shown you an extraordinary act of kindness and support that's really helped you along the way Okay, that is a question, isn't it? Because um, you think about what that what that did, that letter, that almost gave you a license yeah. to believe your dream to become the next Des Lynam, yeah, it right? Did. It felt attainable because the actual Des Lynam had come back to you, right? And when you're living in Crawley and or you're living in the Cotswolds as I was, for somebody to even acknowledge your existence feels epic in that moment, doesn't it? Yeah. I was an 11-year-old kid and I wrote to Des Lynham and he wrote back and said, you know, uh, do your GCSEs, do your A-levels, go to university, don't do a media degree, do something in English or history, something that teaches you to write, and then uh, get a job in local radio. And once you've done that, write back to me. And, I, 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 you know, I didn't think I would follow those that path because I was going to be a teacher. And then I got turned down for being too immature. Um, <laughs> because you dropped your trousers at the interview, Dan. 
That is true. But I, um, <laughs> but I, I mean, uh, it wasn't without foundation. <laughs> and and just just so that that isn't misleading and we don't end up, you know, with some sort of uh, headline around that, uh, you were wearing a sports kit underneath. You were trying to explain that you were going off yes, to... That's, that's why fine. you dropped your trousers. You weren't yes, because, trying to win the day. Exactly. Very important, Kate. The lady who was interviewing, you've got red socks on. Um, I'm worried about you being the, the teacher who uh, teaches the kids nothing but is their friend and i went hold on a minute you you're judging me on my socks i've got these socks on because i've got my football kit underneath my suit that i borrowed and i dropped my trousers to show that not the not the wisest thing i've ever done and i probably was rightfully removed from that course but great that she did remove you from the course because yeah then it was like okay back to des in the studio exactly yeah <laughs> and i you know i've had the opportunity to to thank him um since then but i'm right i'm gonna i'm gonna mention two things Right, one was just an act of kindness, which met, meant an awful lot to me. I was in um, Poland uh, a few years ago covering the European Championships and uh, I had a slightly, slightly strange lump in my stomach. Uh, I felt like a my breathing was changing a little bit and I went to the medical centre in the broadcast centre there and um, within two and a half minutes, I was in the back of an ambulance on my way to uh, Polish A&E and a guy called Richard Hughes who is the editor of Match of the Day now um, and a guy I've worked with for many years uh, he dropped everything and came with me and you know, you know times in your life when you like, you think I just sometimes you need someone to hold your hand because it that it, uh, it did get a bit scary that night about two o'clock in the morning a Polish consultant came in and um, told me that I had cancer because uh, they'd seen some shadows on my kidney and like he used the word tumour and we had a, a fixer with us who spoke Polish and English and I, I said to her, I said, I just heard that word. Can you can you just confirm? Is that the same in Polish as in English? Is he talking about tumour as in cancer? And she came back and she went, yes, he, he is. He says he thinks you've got cancer in your kidney. And uh, Richard sat right next to me there and like you have that time where you're thinking, okay, let's process this. Do I, what do I do about that? Do I ring, do I ring my family? Do I ring my wife? And I just talked to Richard about it. And um, he was he was brilliant and just really calm and you know he's a lovely sort of rugby playing Welsh lad but he's very wise and daft and, and lovely and he was just brilliant that night and um, I said we had a chat and I said to the uh, our fixer I said will you ask I don't I don't mean this to sound rude in any way but um, is the is the head consultant around and can they have a look at the scan because if i'm going to tell my family that i've got cancer i need to know 100 percent. and and the lady said the head consultant um she's coming in at eight o'clock in the morning um and she can have a look at the scan and then at eight o'clock in the morning she came in straight away and she said uh i've got good news it, it's not a tumor you had the whole night thinking it might be i know yeah i know so it was a pretty weird night but richard made it no, I didn't go to a dark place or anything. I was like, okay, well, you know, this, if this is the case, then this is what I'll do and this is how I'll think about it. And, uh, and But Richard was there and really sort of held my hand through all of it. And, I, I, you know, we, when we see each other, I, I, I would just look at, knowing you, someone who's been there when you really need them, I just look at him and I think, Richard, whenever you, whatever you need from me at any stage in life, I will always wow. deliver the goods because you were there when... I needed you. Tell me, Dan, what did you, what did you think that night when you thought, okay, I may, there's a very strong possibility that this doctor could be right, and 
does it sharpen and focus your thinking? Yeah, it does. Um, in the same way that when I had my when I had my bike accident in February of this year, and I was oh, yeah. out for the count for twenty minutes, and I had like a weird sort of out of body experience that day, and I was watching myself on the floor, looking at the paramedics, and then I remember being almost like I felt I was. It's going to sound really strange, this cake. I, I have no way of explaining it to you, but I almost felt like I was sucked back into my body and then I started looking out of my eyes again. And then the circle sort of got bigger and bigger and then I could see them, but I couldn't hear them. And then like the sound came back into my brain and then they were talking to me. And you were you were out cold for 20 minutes. So this is you coming back round. Yeah, yeah. And I was uh, in my in my mind. I was cycling along this beautiful French boulevard. I've never been on. I've never cycled on a French boulevard. But I was there, tree lined with baguettes and jam in the basket of this bike, sort of cycling so you're kind along. You're tripping out, Dan. I mean, look, I must point out here, you're in Sheffield. <laughs> yes, yes, I was in Sheffield on a very wet and cold morning, and I was lying on the tarmac of a, a roundabout in Sheffield, like just out of it. But I think anything like that just makes you reassess and makes you check and makes you think. And I. Uh, this is going to sound really daft now, but I did think about, uh, I love history. I studied history at university. I thought about Charles I um, in Poland because uh, he was uh, executed. And um, his quote when they said they were going to um, execute him was, um, I fear not death. I bless my Lord. I am prepared. And um, I think I'm, I, I take my faith really seriously. And I'm, you know, you don't want to die, but I always also feel that I'm. Whatever happens will will happen, and I I feel that you know I've I'm okay with that. Um, you know, it's sad to. There's obviously great sadness associated with death, but but I also feel that I am. You know, I have a good relationship with with God through Jesus Christ, and I feel that you know it's when that time comes, I'm I'm. I'm ready for it, if that makes sense. that makes yeah. sense at all. But equally, I mean, th- this is straight talking coming from a man that thought that a roundabout in Sheffield could have been the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> <laughs> so you're making some kind of sense-ish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes, I do, that you are no, you're not afraid of what comes uh, after this life because you've, you share a yeah. faith that gives you comfort in that moment. Yeah, and I think that was... Um, so I didn't, I didn't sort of cry or panic in in Poland. I just sort of carefully thought it through. I thought about what I would, if it was the case I had cancer, what would I say to my wife? I didn't know how serious it might be at that point. I just knew there were a series of black shadows on my kidneys because um, they went down to about thirty percent functionality. So uh, I had a, I had this weird sort of virus that had really affected them, and they. It's such a strange night because they then came in and they. Uh, they pumped eight liters of saline fluid into my body. Eight liters um, to try and eight liters to try and get my kidney to start again. So I, I'm, that's and I'm a not, huge amount of of liquid. So the next day, I, I went, they let me go home. The next day, they gave me these drugs to sort of line my stomach, and then these really heavy drugs to try and sort of get the kidney started again. And um, the next day, I woke up and I went to the bathroom mirror. And I, part of me wishes I had taken a photograph, but I didn't because my my face was, my head was about twice the size that it is at the moment. Uh, every part of my body was swollen and I couldn't get my, I couldn't even get my like boxer shorts on. That's how I'd walk around naked. So I couldn't get my pants on because my body was so bloated with this water that wasn't being, that wasn't being processed. Eight litres of saline. I, know, I was at the stage, 
Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. I had to, <laughs> I had to wait. <laughs> I had to wait for the kidneys to start working again. And after about forty-eight hours, they started to process water again. And I, and I sort of—it's very strange. I just sort of went back to my normal uh, size. But that was a very weird week. God. Yeah, <laughs> that and that and the Sheffield Roundabout—that's you know just. Just a, le- yeah. a hard left off the Champs Elysees. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the other thing I was going to say. So that was Richard. The other one is um, I really uh, when I agreed to do Strictly Come Dancing, I said no to Strictly for four years, and then I said yes to it. And I had no idea what it was going to be like. All I knew was my kids had really asked me to do it, and I felt like I was doing it for the right reasons. I didn't want it. I'm not interested in fame. I wasn't there to be famous. I wasn't there to, you know, get a job. Um, I wasn't there to boost my profile or anything. I just wanted to do it so I could say to my children, listen, I did it and I was a bit worried about it and it's something that I'm not very good at and I don't feel comfortable doing it, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to give it a go and I'll be there for a couple of weeks and that'll be fine. And then um, actually, um, I, I enjoyed it far more than I ever thought I would. And learning to dance was a, an unbelievable experience and learning to dance with... Nadia Bishkova, who, you know, for five years, she was the best dancer on the planet, like two-time world champion and admired the world over. And all of a sudden she's teaching this numpty to dance, you know, (laughs) and she just, she totally opened my eyes to it. And it was like learning an entirely new language, which I'd shut myself off from my entire life. And I remember there was one, um, about weeks, uh, I can't remember what week it was now, week six or seven, I remember when I first walked down to the dance floor, I held her hand so tight, it was ridiculous. Because I love telly, right? Like you, I, I love being on telly. I love the red light. I love all that business. But everybody, ha- nobody likes looking like an absolute goon. And I walked out there thinking, there is a chance here that I could look a complete fool, <laughs> right? And I walked out and I held her hand really tight. And I was, I was smiling and looking like I was enjoying myself. But And I was enjoying myself, but I was like, oh, Daniel, come on. Uh, and then six or seven weeks in, I remember we walked out and I was like, I've had my chest out like this. I was like walking like a tiger out onto the dance floor. <laughs> while they, she looked at me and she went, is there, are you okay? I went, oh yeah, yeah you, you're fine now. She, what do you mean? He goes, I feel as comfortable on this dance floor as I do in a TV studio. And she went, this is fantastic. I said, I said, you've got TV Dan now. And she went, oh, I like TV Dan. Is there anything you'd like me to do? And I went, just keep up with it. <laughs> Two-time world champion, oh, by the way. <laughs> I love it. But I know, I mean, this takes me really quite nicely to my third and final question for you, but I know that you're, you would, the teenage boy in you that admired sports stars so much that, you know, you were the guy that probably had a Daily Thompson poster instead of a Madonna one in your bedroom. I did. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I did. I, I did. I had Daily Thompson. I had Garth Crooks. I had, I've got a cardboard cutout of Gary Lineker in my, still in my loft. There was a local bookshop in my hometown, Crawley, and when Gary written a book, <laughs> They had a cardboard cutout of Gary Lineker. And I went to the bookshop after the after Christmas. I said, is there any way that I could have that cardboard cutout of Gary, Gary Lineker? I've still got it. <laughs> so I understand your the reverence that you accord your dance partner because in your world, she's a superstar because she is a, a, a world champion. And, and I know that means so, mm. so much to you. So maybe maybe Strictly qualifies in amongst uh, your response to my third and final question. Let's find out. Okay. 
As a live television junkie, uh, you were drawn to big moments, but I wondered what have been the big moments in your own life, the ones that went on to put a rung on your ladder? And I'm sure that when you signed up for Strictly, you never expected it to be as informative as it is. But the week that we're talking, for example, Christian Guru Murphy has just gone out, another great newsman, and he wept. Yeah. He wept when he left the competition because, you know, he loved it so much. He got so much from it. I've I done know. Strictly. I've I've hosted the tour. I've seen the magic that sits within the bubble, so I get it. But I'm not sure that people really understand how that glitter gets you. <laughs> it really got you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Well, I just I, I I think I enjoyed it ten times more than I thought I would. I, you know, I, I I as somebody who loves live telly as well, Strictly is like it's the biggest show on the box, and they basically employed everybody who's brilliant at their jobs to come together, whether that's wardrobe, makeup, hair lighting floor managers you know everybody's like, brilliant like the job and they put them, for saturday they, nights isn't that it yeah. is it is and i just think i was i expected to be there for three weeks maximum and i was there for three months and actually it became now i was almost like playing a game you know what these programs are like you know they're very heavily produced and i think nobody had seen me dance before i started including then, you they got not <laughs> including me and they got no idea how good you could and then I think, you know, in, in their minds, oh, he'll be here for four or five weeks maximum. We kind of, you know, people kind of like him. They watch him on breakfast and then we'll get rid of him. And actually, we were there for like 11 or 12 yeah, weeks. Yeah, Dan. That's, I mean, that's some going. <laughs> but, I, but I just, I just, in, I, I enjoyed pushing myself, Kate. I love being tested. And I also love spending time with people who are brilliant mm. at what they do. And I watched, watching Nadia and watching Nikita and, um, you know, Graziano and uh, Giovanni and uh, Karen and Diane, watch, watching these people who are brilliant at what they do, I always think, I can learn something from you. And I've always been like that around brilliant people, whether they're sports stars or whether they're, you know, business champions or whether they're, uh, you know, brilliant chefs or whatever it is. I'm thinking, you've spent a lifetime learning that skill. I can take something from you. And that can make me better at what I do. And I said to, I saw Nadia a few weeks ago. And I said to her, "You've made me better. You've made me a better presenter. I'm a better presenter because of what you taught me on Strictly Come Dancing." How's that um, informed your presenting? And I think that's a, well, I just think I, for a start, I walk differently. She, she changed my walk week one. <laughs> Um, but I, I also think that it gives me because I I'm confident I'm, I've always been super confident in every studio that I walk into and I think the one part of my life where I thought that's what other people do was dancing other people dance and enjoy it I can't do that I, I, it's just you know I'll, I'll hold your handbag at a wedding I'll organise drinks I'll take the kids I'll take the photos yeah while you all dance I'll do the photos <laughs> you know I'll do the funny oh look at me walk like an Egyptian and that's that's as far as it goes right <laughs> you know that person yeah. but i think what i think what strictly taught me was that there's nothing there's nothing there's no barriers like um and i learned from nadia and from that program that actually there aren't don't don't limit yourself don't think you can't do that and i think there was one week where um Bearing in mind, I'd ne never sort of done any dancing before at all. And then I think it was, we did an American Smooth and I was injured the whole week, right? And uh, I hadn't been able to dance at all. And for the, anybody, the way that Strictly works is you sort of train Monday, as you well know, you train Monday to Thursday. Friday, you're in the 
in the studio doing a dress rehearsal and sort of checking the lights and sound and all that. And then Saturday's the programme. So it's Thursday morning, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and I've not danced a step of our American Smooth, right? And I, I, I've, my leg is really hurting. It's got a little bit better overnight. And all I've done is I've watched Nadia dance my steps and tried to take it in. That's it. I've just been sat on the side watching her for three days. And I walked in on the Thursday morning and I said, right, partner, how long have we got today to learn this? And she went, I've got a car coming to take us to it takes two at um, four o'clock this afternoon. I went, okay, we've got six hours. I'm going to learn it in six hours. Did you? Because it's technical, the American Smooth. Yeah, I, I know. I did, did all these funky lifts. Um, and I just, I've just switched my head on. If, and what she said to me was, we've got six hours to make this work. Otherwise, we're going home. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to go home. I'm enjoying this. So I just learned it in six hours. And that's the highest score we got in the competition. Now, if an idiot like me, Kate, can learn an American Smooth in six hours and dance it in front of 11, 12 million people on Saturday night and not make a mistake then there are no limits to what I can do. Yeah. Does that make sense? That's how I, so that's really taught me. The thing that I really loved, um, you mentioned at the start that I, I wrote a book yes. last year. It's called Standing on the Shelf. Basically people who help us to see a bit further than we can on our own. And there's some amazing people in there. And when the book came out, I organised an, an evening in London and... Almost everybody in the book, 48 people in the book, almost all of them came. So these right? are just to explain to the listeners, these are the stories of extraordinary people that have really, really impressed you with their everyday uh, lives and achievements. The extraordinary, ordinary yeah. people. It's, yeah. Um, in, also in there was um, Rose Ailing Ellis and her mum, Donna, because oh, yeah. I found Rose... I found Rose on Strictly to be such an inspiration to me. And I, I voted for Rose from week one. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but I did. Anyway. Um, By the way, it was the same year you competed, right? Yeah, I was in the same year as Rose, yeah. So, <laughs> I told her, I remember after we, after the first week, I said, Rose, I don't say this the wrong way, but I, I just had three votes on the app. I showed her, I said, I voted for you three times. I'm, that's going to be my vote every week. So this thing is amazing. Was, she? And um and I just she, the way that you know her mum I love the fact that her mum was there almost every week and her mum had had to fight her whole life for her daughter to be accepted and to have the same opportunities that everybody else had and her mum was like you know Rose can do anything um, there were no boundaries for my daughter even though she's deaf and you know the moment where she danced uh, to uh, Clean Bandit with uh, Giovanni just uh, to be sat five metres away from that it was just like wow I never that forget was a that. moment wasn't it so Rose Rose is in there, but also people like Martin Hibbert, who lost the use of his legs in the Manchester Arena bomb. Uh, the three dads, who are now really well known, but I met them first on BBC Breakfast. They all lost their daughters to suicide, and they managed to raise over a million pounds walking between the three houses. And I just, I find them unbelievable. And um, then there's, uh, you know, people like uh, Tony, who uh, I've sorted the fly pass out for. There's an amazing mum called Ilsa Fieldsend, whose daughter, Georgia, died of a brain aneurysm. And she decided on her deathbed to donate her organs. And she gave away her eyes and she gave away her lungs and she gave away various parts of her body. And now the only thing that keeps her going is to know that Georgia's death is actually helping people to see and, and live in a world which, to be honest with you, a, a, lot, a world without Georgia is unbelievably painful for Ilsa every single day, but that's what keeps her going. So there's all these sorts of people and an amazing woman who um, lost her son, Martin Hett, in the Manchesterina bomb called Fegan Murray. And how does she forgive the person who killed her son? And there's all these sorts of issues and people in the book. And I got them all together in one room. 
Oh wow, that must have and been so emotional, a, Dan. Hey, it was it was bananas because I I stood up on stage and I said I just want to introduce you all to the people in this room, and I just went through them all one by one, and there was a you know, there were a few moments of like audible gasping because. Um, I don't know if you remember the London Bridge attack at Fishmonger's mm. Hall. And I said, do you remember that attack? And there was a guy there called um, Steve Gallant, who was a, a murderer and had been in prison for 14 and a half years for murdering somebody in a really brutal way. That was his first ever day yeah. out of prison. And yeah. Steve Gallant attacked Usman Khan and stopped him from killing other people. There was also a guy called Darren Frost, who was the man with the narwhal tusk who ripped it off the wall and chased Usman Khan out of Fishmongers Hall onto London Bridge. And together, these two saved dozens of lives. Both those men are in the room tonight. They stood over there. And, like, it was that sort of, oh, my word. And it was, the, you remember Jimmy Olabumli Adewoli, who uh, jumped in a tent to save that woman who was drowning, and he lost his own life. I spoke to one of the chapters in the book is about him and about his best friend Bernard and, and his mum and his brothers are mentioned in the book and his mum came and his mum stood over there and she pulled me to one side afterwards and she said I, I, I might get emotional telling you this Kate it's still the whole reason why I wrote the book but she said she pulled me to one side and she said thank you for giving my son a voice mm. right and she said I, I, I read the chapter and that was my boy mm. I was like okay that's all I ever need to hear. Thank you. Gave her a hug. And um, I'm still really good friends with Bernard, actually. I speak to Bernard quite regularly. But um, you know, That goes right back to what we were saying at the beginning, Dan, right? You just tell stories, important stories. That's an important... For her, there was no more important a page turn than seeing her son represented in your words. Yeah. And that's, that's, and then, and that's that, then there's that responsibility, isn't there, Kate, to tell that story well. And there's a guy, there's a guy in the book who I keep coming back to as well, right? Um... And so this night was amazing. And what a night. That's got to be a massive night. moment in your world, uh, right? Genuinely, genuinely one of the best nights ever. Because all these people, you know, Darren Frost, who was the man with the narwhal tusk, um, met Donna, uh, Rose's mum, and they sort of came over to each other. And I was stood right next to them when they said it. And Donna went, can I just say, Darren, I read your chapter in the book. I think what you did was amazing. And he goes, no, no, hold on it. You're Rose's mum. I, I watched every every second of Strictly last year and I loved it and you were brilliant and you're amazing and then I just thought this is lovely to get all these people who don't see themselves as brilliant because they're so humble inspiring each other and inspiring others and I loved it and there's a there's a guy in the in the story of the three dads there's a guy called Sandy who's an architect and Sandy was looking out of his bedroom window his kitchen window one day and he saw the body of one of these girls who was um, Andy who's one of the three dads his daughter and she'd taken her own life and he saw her on a beach and um, he was so struck by this. He stayed with her body until the police turned up. But then he started thinking, you know, could I have saved her? If I'd have gone out on the bridge before she decided to jump, could I have looked after her? Could I maybe? And he started to feel guilt, even though he'd never met this girl. And he found out a little bit more about her and he decided to go to her funeral. And he drove from uh, Edinburgh all the way down to Cumbria to attend a funeral. Didn't know anybody, right? And he was outside the, he was outside the church, and then he, he went to the wake, and he's there in tears because for him, it was really important for him to know that Sophie was loved, and he saw these people at the funeral, and that really helped him. And then somebody came up to him and said, are you, um, are you part of the family? Why are you here? And he goes, oh, I'm, I just... It's going to sound really weird, but I just needed to be here. Um, and he started talking to this guy called Nigel. And he said, 
explained that he'd found Sophie's body. And Nigel said, can you come inside, please? And um, so he went inside and uh, Nigel went up to Andy, who's Sophie's dad. And he said, Andy, I need you to introduce you to this guy. And Andy like, looked at him and went, uh, okay, um, I'm, at the, you know, I'm at my daughter's funeral. This, this better be important. And um, Nigel said, remember that the police told you that somebody stayed by your daughter's body until they turned up. This is the guy. And Andy had always felt that was so important to him that somebody looked oh. after his daughter. And these two men sort of embraced. And um, Sophie's last ever present that she bought her dad was a... She died at Christmas and she bought him a Christmas present that year. And the Christmas present was a whiskey tour in Edinburgh. They do a whiskey tour up in Edinburgh. And she bought him that as a present. And um, I love the fact that every single year that Andy and Sandy and the families gather together on that beach where he found Sophie's body and they, you know, they remember her together. And um, Andy and Sandy have been on that oh. whiskey tour together and they're still really good friends. And um, when Andy decided to run the Bamborough Half Marathon in the place of his daughter, who couldn't take the place because she was no longer with us, he trained like you wouldn't believe to do this and he crossed the finish line and guess who was on the oh. finish line? Sandy. Sandy had cycled all the way from Edinburgh for two days to be there when Andy crossed the finish line. Now that, Kate, for me, I, I think about him a lot because... When Sophie decided, for whatever reason, to take her own life, you think every decision that we make has ripples. And I just, I love the fact that out of the most awkward, Awful. difficult, painful thing that that family had ever been through, there's this beautiful friendship, which I know keeps Andy going every single day. And Sandy, we all need a bit of Sandy in our life. I, he's a softly spoken, gorgeous Scotsman who genuinely has opened my eyes to what it means to be sacrificial and caring and sort of loving you need to put these stories on screen at channel five dan because i mean that and you know what listening to them all the the themes are you know redemption adversity forgiveness resilience Mm. they're great they're they're almost it's almost like a bible reading isn't it that there's you know in terms of you know (laughs) in terms of your faith so many of the themes of the Christian faith run through these stories, these people, uh, and the extraordinary circumstances that, in which they find themselves. Yeah, and I think that is at the heart of who I am. And um, my faith is really important to me. It is what makes me tick. It informs the things I say, the jobs that I do, the things I say no to, the everything, the you know, the words that come out of my mouth, all those, all those things. And it, it, I also think, Kate, it gives me a real perspective as well because you know what this job is like it has the ability to take you right up here and drag you right down there and the things that people say to you and about you um can really make a big impact on people and i've seen that i'm sure you have as well where people are really low and even though they've got an amazing job it's it's hard and we struggle to get out of bed in the morning because it's constantly like a toffee hammer on your head every single day and i i think that my faith is one of the things that enables me to keep a sense of perspective and I don't get taken too high or dragged too low because I know that my value doesn't come from what people say about me or write about me or think about me. Um, I know that I'm valued by God and that, that really keeps me on that sort of narrow path. If, that if makes this sense is what, if these, these are the stabilizers that you use to, to stay in the, 
the right side of this business in terms of your sanity, your self-worth, the way you identify yourself. If that's what helps you to do that, fantastic, you know. But I do, when you look through the collection of stories that you've um, pulled together um, for Standing on the Shoulders, I did really see a lot of Christian values running through why you were drawn to these people in the first place. And they are really, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful collection of stories. It really is. In, and difficult reads at times, but... My goodness, it restores your faith in in people who have um, found themselves in the worst of places and it shows the best of them. Don't you find that that's what, you know, I, I jump out of bed every morning, Kate, because I love my job and, I, you know, I love my family and I, I love the opportunity to tell these people's stories. And I, what I find fascinating about everybody in that book and people that you meet every day is that I love spending time with people who have been in some of these impossible situations where grief completely consumes you or guilt is dragging you down every day and you think you're in the you're in the deepest darkest pit it's possible for a human to be in and yet there's something inside them that makes them turn around and look towards that light at the end of that tunnel however far away that might be find the light yeah it's a wonderful book and I've loved talking to you today. Thank you so much, Dan, for your time. Thank you, um, I really hope that we get to do it in real life one day. Yes, and you know what? You're, uh, this is nice for me because everyone has always told me that you are really lovely and great to work with and a really kind person Thanks. and a brilliant broadcaster. And the only thing I've known is that you're a brilliant broadcaster, Kate, but now I know all the other things are true oh, as well. Dan, you're going to make me cry. Honestly, my hormones are off the scale right now. <laughs> That means an enormous amount coming from a, an actual giant in the telly world. So thank you. Thank you. And yeah, I really do hope we get to do it again um, in person. And um, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to, to do this face to face with you because that would have been lovely. I'll bring a pint of milk. Yeah, and I'll bring my ninth <laughs> espresso of the day. Sorry, let's just go out and have a drink, shall we? chats with other great broadcasters we have episodes in our back catalogue with ben shepherd richard and judy ruth langsford eamon holmes lorraine kelly craig doyle vernon k simon mayo ken bruce and so many more i'll be back with you on tuesday with a mini episode of something from the cellar to wet your midweek whistle until then thanks as always for listening White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.